Welcome to Focus, a productivity podcast about more than just cranking widgets. I'm Mike Schmitz. I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, David. Hey, Mike. How are you today? Doing pretty good. How about you? Are you miserable? <laughs> I am not, but I think I'm going to learn how to be if I really wanted to be. Yeah, I, I do have a tendency to make myself miserable sometimes, and uh, we both read a book that was really great, and we're going to talk about that today. But uh, before we get into the weeds, we've got a few things to share. Uh, first is the Obsidian Field Guide Lives. Amen. So the uh, if you're interested in using Obsidian and you'd like some some training, some learning up on that, I've got that for you. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, the Obsidian Field Guide is 78 videos, six hours long, and really teaches you how to use Obsidian. So uh, it's something I've been working on about eight months now, and I, uh, I'd love for you to check it out if you're interested. I'm excited about this one, obviously, because I love Obsidian, but also yeah. because I know you've been talking to me about it for a very long time. I know how much effort went into this one, so I think this is going to be one of the best ones yet. Obsidian is hard to teach, you know, uh, of all the things I've ever done a course on, because this one is such an, it's so open, it's got kind of a steep learning curve, and you can take it simply or complex, it really depends, you know, teaching someone how to use it really requires kind of threading the needle, and uh, so it took me a while to figure this one out. I know you too, I mean, you've got that great, you know, Obsidian University, which does cohort-based learning on this stuff, and I think you're 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 trying to tackle the same problem of a very powerful tool that's not that easy to get your arms around. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, um, the uh, the cohort is uh, going to be coming up shortly. I'll share more information when that when I have it. But yeah, the, the cool thing about Obsidian is everybody uses it slightly differently, and every time you see somebody use it, you get new ideas. And so I cannot wait to go through the field guide and see how Max Sparky uses <laughs> Obsidian because I know you've walked me through different things here and there, but uh, really when you dive into the weeds, that's when you start to see the, how, how things can be, uh, can be made personal. You know, you can apply it to your, your own system and uh, that sort of thing, you know, just seeing how someone does simple little things or the types of settings that they, they toggle, that's enough to, to trigger some inspiration. And that's the really cool thing. Uh, thing about it you can learn from just about anybody it is a very interesting application and and it, it is just like you said it's just, there's so much to it it's so open and that's what really makes it fun so i'm curious david do you have anything that you'd be willing to tease as some crazy workflow that you have used uh, obsidian for i know that on your other show you try to avoid the topic but this is uh this is a safe space here so okay go ahead <laughs> Uh, you know, I really think of it as the home of Sparky OS, my operating system. And the the thing I get most out of Obsidian, and I've used it for a lot of stuff over the years. I, you know, I, I, there's an arc to Obsidian. In fact, I have a video about it in the course where you learn it and you're like, this is amazing. And you want to push everything you do into it. And then eventually you start to realize, well, maybe I went a little too far and I don't want this to hold everything. But for me, the the arc was, you know, I really pushed it to the limits and I scaled back a bit. But the thing that really lands for me is Sparky OS. And um, the, what I mean by Sparky OS is I have uh, documented my thoughts and feelings about all the things that are important to me. And, you know, concepts of spirituality, ethics, 
operating systems, workflows, everything that I kind of believe in and writes my operating system, I have written it down or I've slowly been working on writing it down. And I found it to be such a great experience because I always knew kind of what I thought about this or that. But forcing yourself to write it down, you know, sometimes I find links and research in relation to it, or sometimes I don't. And how this this idea or principle ties to some other principle or thought that I believe in, you know. I mean, my goal is when they put me in the ground to be Aristotle's virtuous man. I want to be someone who did it right. And uh, I find that codifying it, writing it down, makes it more real for me. And it changes my attitude towards things where they're not loosely held beliefs, but they're true values. And so that's, for me, that is the gold that I get out of Obsidian is a platform that allows me to easily do that and tie this stuff together. Is that an answer that, uh, I, I know it was kind of a hippie answer, but that's that's really it for me. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I can't wait to, to see this. The, um, the, the, the thing I wrote about Obsidian in the marketing page was master the app that helps you master your thoughts. And I feel like I should sell that to them because it's just, it really defines the app. It, it's just a, it's just a crazy app, man. And it just keeps, <laughs> they just did 1.4. They added, you know, properties they got, they just keep making it better. Uh, you and I are both excited about it. It's kind of funny. I was thinking about it this morning because you're the one who's told me you got to see this thing Rome research. It's crazy. <laughs> and you turned me on to it, right? And then I remember having the same conversation with you where I'm like, you got to see this thing, Obsidian. And you and I are fellow travelers on this. I think both of us totally appreciate and understand software tools that help you think. And uh, it's very fun to be helping spread the word. Yeah, absolutely. Tools for Thought is a, a really cool idea, category, whatever you want to call it. It's it's something that really just pushes all of, all of my buttons. So yeah. But yeah, credit to uh, Max Sparky for getting me into the Obsidian verse. Well, I, I don't think I just gave you a nudge, buddy. You did all the work. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but uh, the field guide, there is a the standard version, which gets you the seventy eight videos in six hours, is fifty dollars. And there's a extended version for a hundred dollars that we're going to have a webinar series and a bunch of guests. Mike Mike Schmitz may even be there. I don't know. I have to get his confirmation. <laughs> But we'll have different people come in that are using it in different ways and, and webinars. So that's $100. But they both have a 10% off coupon for a short time. Um, so just, you know, go check it out. We'll put the link in the uh, in the notes. Uh, the 10% off coupon from the Focus will be uh, Focused Obsidian. How's that for a unique discount code? Uh, Love focused, it. focused obsidian, no space, and you get ten percent off. That's only for a limited time, and um, go check it out, gang. Uh, the other thing that's happening is Relay is about to have its tenth anniversary, and we had a fifth anniversary party in San Francisco. It was a live show; it was a lot of fun. Uh, Mike came, and uh, and Rachel, and we got to spend a lot of time together. That was really fun. Strangely, that was the last live event that Relay did believe it or not, yeah. five years ago. And uh, we've had a lot of water under the bridge and a few pandemics between then and now, but we're ready to do another live event. This one is going to be in London. So that's kind of fun. And it's the 10th anniversary in London. It's on July 27th, 2024. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. We'd love you to join us there. 
Uh, we're still working on getting Mike Schmitz there. I'm giving him a little nudge. Hopefully, we'll see you there, Mike. <laughs> I know you got hey, some worked, planning worked to do last I time. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I know there's some planning with five kids and things. It's not something that's an easy yes for you, but hopefully, we get to see you there too. But uh, either way, it's going to be a lot of fun. And if you would like to join us, just go get yourself a ticket while they last, and we'll see you there. This episode of the Focus Podcast is brought to you by Vitaly, bringing a new era for customer success productivity. Get a free pair of AirPods Pro when you book a qualified meeting. Customer success teams today are facing a problem. How do they connect customer data back to their work? Vitaly changes that. It's a new kind of customer success platform, an all-in-one collaborative workspace that combines your customer data with all capabilities you expect from today's project management and work platforms. Because it's designed for today's customer success team, that's why Vitaly operates with unparalleled efficiency, improves net revenue retention, and delivers best-in-class customer experiences. It's the solution to helping your customer success team keep a better pulse on your customers, which maximizes productivity, visibility, and collaboration. You can boost your bottom line by driving more revenue per customer with Vitaly. And if you take a qualified demo of Vitaly, get a free pair of AirPods Pro. So if you're a customer success decision maker actively seeking CS solutions, working at a B2B software as a service company with 50,000 employees, and you're willing to explore changing customer success platforms if you already have one in place, Schedule your call by visiting vitally.io slash focused and get a free pair of AirPods Pro. That's vitally.io slash focused for a free pair of AirPods Pro when you schedule a qualified meeting. And our thanks to Vitally for their support of the Focus Podcast and all of Relay FM. So, Mike Schmitz, about two months ago, you told me about this book by Randy Patterson called How to Be Miserable. And you told me the basic premise behind it. And I was like, yes, I want to read that book. At the time, we didn't know that we would make a show about it. It was just two friends talking about a good book. But uh, I've really enjoyed reading this book so much so that I've been uh, bugging you to do a show about it. And I know you have another podcast where you talk about books, but we're going to take a different angle to it. Um, uh, But tell us uh, about how to be miserable, Mike. Yeah, so this is kind of a satirical productivity book, I guess. Uh, the full title is how to be miserable 40 strategies you already use by randy j patterson and uh, when i read the title and i started flipping through the sections uh, i realized right away that it could also be called how not to be focused (laughs) Um, and so this book is kind of fascinating in that uh, if you're used to reading self-help or productivity type books like I am where you have these authors who are telling you don't even worry about trying to figure all this out I have gone through all the the stuff and I've condensed it down into a system and all you got to do is is listen to me this is like the exact opposite of that which is actually kind of a, a breath of, of fresh air but every single one of these is written from the perspective of you know like lesson one, for example, is avoid all exercise, right? And it talks about how uh, if you exercise, you feel better. So if you really want to be miserable, you should stop doing that. <laughs> and it's, uh, it, it, it is a, uh, an entertaining read for sure, but uh, I thought it would make a, a cool discussion as we talk about what are the, the, 
the strategies that we have inadvertently been using to break our focus and make ourselves more miserable. Yeah. Uh, the author, Randy Patterson, is a mental health professional. And some of the things he talked about in the introductory sections really landed with me. And one of them is a story. He tells it in the, the first part of it called Adopting a Miserable Lifestyle. And he was talking about talking to his patients. And he would often ask a question at the end of their interviews. He'd say, look, let's take 12 random people. And I'm paraphrasing here. So let's take 12 random people on the street. Tell them how you're living your life, your exercise, your diet, your um, the, the type of work you're doing, your relationship with the work and the people that you choose to spend your time with. And let's see if you think they would be happy or miserable. And his patients inevitably say, no, they'd be miserable. And then trying to like open the, the door to the thought that maybe um, if we're not happy in life, it's because of the actions we're taking and, and how we're almost solving for miserable instead of solving for happiness. And I thought that was such an excellent kind of counterpoint to look at this stuff. Like instead of just saying, this is what you need to do, say, no, this is what you're doing that is creating your, your condition. And, and I thought, well, at least I'm, I'm happy and I don't have these problems. And then I started reading through the book. I'm like, wow, Ooh, that one's close, you know? (laughs) And I I went through and I started marking them up. And I, by the time I got through the book, I had seven or eight that I was like, okay, I'm going to really make sure that I start, start taking action to not let these things drag me down. That there were, there were, there were uh, several in here that I am currently actively doing to make myself miserable. Uh, The book includes 40 total um, miserable strategies I guess for lack of a better term. <laughs> and so then me and Mike started talking about, it, we're like, well, let's do a show and we're both going to pick the five we're best at. And that's in quotes, you know? <laughs> and um, I thought, you know, we could share it with the audience, talk about what we're doing about it and maybe inspire you to, um, to take steps along with us and also read the book. Cause there's, there's, there's 30 more. We're only covering 10 in the episode today, but, but we found the ones that, that we are, uh, that we are uh, at the top of the class on. So <laughs> We're going to yeah, do that. The ones today. that really resonate, right? Yeah, but it, it, it's a good book, and uh, and it's a fun read too, which isn't always true with this stuff. But I, I think the whole the way he turns it on his head allows you to bring kind of a lightheartedness to the topic that too many productivity books don't give you, and uh, and I think that really makes it easier for you to say, "Oh yeah, boy, I suck at this too. I'm going to try and make some changes." And uh, I, overall, I just I just really wanted to share this with the audience because I think. Uh, you picked a good one, Mike. <laughs> the description on the back of the book is is pretty great. It's the ultimate don't do it guide. And then below that says, are you tired of overly earnest self-help books promising love, happiness, and a fabulous life? Would you rather hone the habits that keep you feeling stuck and unhappy? If so, How to Be Miserable will help you pinpoint the tried and true behaviors that increase feelings of dissatisfaction, zap your energy, and ultimately sabotage your life. <laughs> it's uh, it's good. And then the the bottom of the blurb says, you know, but if by some strange, strange desire you decide you want to be happy instead, this witty irreverent guide will show you what not to do. And that really is at the the heart of the the thing that kind of inspired me to want to talk about this is, yeah, it occurred to me that a lot of the books that we read and probably a lot of the podcasts that we listen to and a lot of the places that we go for self-help advice, typically they are telling us this is what you should do. They are very prescriptive on you need to do this thing 
Uh, yeah. But there's also the possibility that the things that you are doing are causing you to be unhappy and you could simply stop doing some of those things, right? So there's yeah. the the commission where it's intentional act that we're going to do something, but then there's omission where we, it just happens by default. And I thought that's a fascinating concept as it pertains to not only happiness, but focus. There are things that we do that sabotage our focus. There are also things that we just don't do that are causing us to not be able to focus um, and likewise uh, not be be happy. I really do think there's a, a pretty firm connection here between the focused life and the happy life. Uh, I've been reading some other books on like what is a good life, what is a life worth living, that's that sort of thing. And uh, at the at the uh, core of it, essentially, you want to be happy, right? Well, what are the things that ultimately make you happy? Is it that you live a long time? Is it that you are well off and you can do what whatever you want? Uh, I think more closely related to happiness is our ability to focus on the thing that we want to do and then follow through with that intention. We can define for ourselves what that in- intention is. You know, maybe we have some selfish intentions, and I'm not going to judge that. Maybe we have uh, very selfless intentions because we we hear stories of people who were very selfless and they lived a short life. They they died uh, believing in a for a cause that they really believed in, and no one would argue like that was a a wasted life, right? But at the heart of all of that is this ability to focus on what is really important. So I don't know. There's a bunch of different layers to this. I feel. Yeah, like one that comes to me is chickens and eggs. Uh, do you need focus to be happy, or do you need to be, do you need to be happy to become focused? Yep. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I do think sure. that if you're miserable, focus is very difficult. Yeah. Agreed. So let's uh, stop doing that. How about? <laughs> yeah, let's stop doing that. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so let's just take we we've got ten here listed. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna just start taking them on. Why don't we? And uh, the one that really stood out to me, and one that I am particularly good at, is called constructing future hells. Okay, uh, if you're listening, maybe you can go along with me on this. Um, I think maybe being a lawyer did this to me. Uh, like the idea of constructing a future hell is. Uh, finding a future where everything is terrible and deciding to live there rather than in the present. This is a, a weakness of mine that I've had my entire life. What if this happens and that happens and then this happens and then I'm homeless and my wife doesn't like me and my dog stops talking to me? And, you know, I, I think this is something that I am particularly adept at doing. Maybe it's an effect of being a creative person that you're able to imagine these universes up, these alternate universes, um, you know, but the fact is uh, I am constantly generating a multiverse of hell around me. Uh, and it's something that I have to really stay on top of myself about. Are you, have you ever experienced that, Mike? <laughs> yeah. So another way to describe this maybe is like thinking worst case scenario all the time. Yeah. And I totally do this uh uh, a lot, in fact, at the uh, the the day job, uh, I learned after a while that I had to uh, preface things because I naturally thought about the problems, and I realized that not everybody thinks that way. <laughs> and so, me constantly bringing up, "Well, what if this happens?" or "What if that happens?" that was having a negative effect on You're people, bringing everybody down. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, I tend to think about, well, you know, this is the uh, the worst thing that could happen in this situation. And uh, if we just, you know, think about that ahead of time, then we can probably uh, avoid that. Uh, but maybe that's not <laughs> not so good after reading this this uh, this section. There's a, a line there, I think, between being prepared for things and just dwelling on that stuff. And that's the only image that you're you're creating is this one where everything possibly that can go everything that can possibly go wrong does go wrong. Yeah. Uh, so there's two things to this. I feel like I want to talk about the impact of living a life where you construct future hells and how to cope with it. Um, the first one is the impact and you brought one up. If you keep doing that, you bring everybody else down, right? You're always like, but what if you do this, you know, whatever the problem is, right. You know, um, uh, you, people don't want to be around you at some point, right. They're like, that guy's such a downer, you know? Yep. Tell him, well, hey, I just won the lotto, but what if you spend all the money? You know, it's like, you know, whatever the problem is you, you're finding. And I don't think I went that far, but I, I do have a tendency. And for me, I don't share it so much as I carry it inside me, but that has the same, that has an impact on my own psyche, right? If I'm always thinking about the worst case scenario, then I'm not able to stop and smell the roses and enjoy them now. And that's all we really have is now. So why am I burning it up in future hell when I should be enjoying what's happening to me here and now? And I, I think that the impact on me uh, of this, the negative impact is that I, I lose the ability to appreciate the moment that I have. That's, you know, that's all you have when you think about it is, you got this instant right now. Whatever happened to you five minutes ago is in the books already. doesn't matter. Whatever's going to happen in your future hasn't happened yet, so that doesn't matter. But you have this moment, so why waste it worried about future hell? And uh, that is, you know, that's the price I pay when I do that. And I think that's a, that's a pretty expensive price. The other price to it is if I'm always going to the negative future, I think it makes me more risk averse and less willing to try things that could be really good for me. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this whole idea of constructing future hells, when I think about it is something that's been really toxic in my life. Um, uh, however, I do have a coping mechanism. This isn't in the book, but I thought I'd share it anyways. When I first started meditating, that was, you know, one of my big challenges is getting lost in fear and you know what ifs and future hells and my my meditation coach my it was a, you know it was a buddhist thing uh, she talked to me about well why don't you take that journey all the way and this is a very standard kind of method in in buddhism is like consider they actually encourage you to construct future hells but the problem is as most people uh we we just stop at the point that it becomes hell we don't like take it to its natural conclusion, you know? Well, what if my, uh, what if I lose all my money and my wife leaves me? Well, you know what? I can still read books and learn and work on myself. You know, it's like, no matter if you take yourself to the end point of whatever it is you're afraid of, just go all the way with it, get beyond the part where it's miserable. It's like, well, what would your life be like that? Usually you find out it's not that bad, you know, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. You would figure a way through it. And then at the moment you get beyond the thing about it being hell and realize that, you know, if this happened, I would still be okay or I would learn how to cope with it, 
then it doesn't it doesn't own you anymore. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of the the fear setting idea. Yeah, which is just putting a name on the the worst case scenario, and then you realize, oh, well, it's really not all that that bad. Uh, the problem is when you do that on every possible <laughs> scenario yeah. Yeah. instead of just the the important ones. But yeah, well, my advice is if you get if you have one that that grabs you, just take it. Don't stop. Just continue down the road, and at some point, it'll let go of you. But at the same time live in the moment it's life's too short so uh that's one of my my power moves is constructing future else <laughs> <laughs> want me to pick one yeah yeah all right so the number one on my list has got to be insist on perfection and uh this is kind of what it says on the the tin so uh, this is something that I have struggled with for uh, a long time with uh, creating anything, really. I, for a long time, didn't want to do anything that I wasn't good at. So even something like the sketch notes that I do now, um, I was very hesitant to start with those because uh, just like anybody who's just starting with something, I was really bad at drawing. In fact, somewhere on the internet, there exists a, an image of my first sketchnote file, which is a stick figure and a bunch of words, right? But I've developed a skill over time because I have learned to, to beat this. But when you insist on perfection, you're not willing to let something go until it is just right. And this is not just from a creative uh, perspective, they talk in the, uh, the the book, the author talks about uh, these people who are happy and he equates them to golden retrievers. <laughs> uh, and they tend to split their expectations into a minimum level of performance about which they would feel content and an aspirational level which they may not seriously expect to reach and to which they do not feel extremely attached. And the uh, the problem for people who insist on perfection is you don't have the ability to reach that aspirational level but you have so much importance tied to it that anything that falls short of that you feel like is a failure but the real secret to getting to that level is iteration and feedback loops and doing something a a bunch of times and every time that you you do it you've got the learning loop and you learn from some of the mistakes that you made and the next time is is better i have not uh, because I'm too scared to <laughs> go back and listen to some of the first podcast episodes that I recorded. But I know if I did, uh, I would instantly be able to see all of the things that I did wrong back then. And I would be able to see how much better I've become over time. But you don't see that in the the moment. You just keep doing the thing, in my case, thousands of times. And uh, you naturally become better at the the thing. So one of the the hard parts for me was learning to detach from that feeling of, well, this isn't quite ready yet, and I'm going to put it out there anyways. And the first time that I did that, I was terrified to do so. Uh, but I guess the the takeaway here and kind of the the way that I am l- continually learning to to beat this is to just ship it, just put it out there, do the best that you can, and then let it go. Uh, and and I put this at the top of my list because I have learned a lot and I've grown a lot in this particular area. 
but it's still something that I struggle with literally every single time that I make something. I always get nervous before I push the the button to release the podcast episodes or to share the sketch note files. Every single time I <laughs> I think this isn't ready yet, it's not good enough and uh, I've just have to force myself to, you know what, it just get it out there. Well, um, it's funny because when we did the outline for the show, I, I filled it out first and I was looking at all the chapters. When I saw Insist on Perfection, I said, Mike is going to pick that one. I said that to myself. <laughs> and that's your yep. first one. Uh, I, I think the, um, the thing is, I don't suffer from this as much as you. I think we all have a degree of perfectionism. But I learned very early that I get better when I publish. Like, um, it's the process of putting it out there, getting the feedback. It, it, that iteration is the best road to perfection. You know, the the natural thought of perfection would be I should never release it until it's perfect. But I think what you, what what I try to think is, well, I want to get to where these are nearly perfect, but the first one is not going to be. And no matter how long I spend cooking it, it won't be. But, you know, once this soup, it's like I'm gumbo. I learned how to cook gumbo. My first gumbo was not great, but my 10th one was pretty good. But if I just spent, you know, all that time trying to make the first one, uh, it's still, I, I wouldn't be where I am now with my gumbo. Yeah. And then there's another application of this too, where it's not just you insist on perfection from yourself, but you insist on perfection from other people, which <laughs> again, I'm guilty of this, where if you just insist that, everyone never make a mistake and they make a mistake that's gonna burn people out there's a fine line there uh, i feel there are some positions where you're a manager you're a leader you need to insist on the the excellence but you can't uh just assume that people are are going to be perfect the net result of of that is that no one wants to do anything for you because they know that you're gonna find something wrong with it and that can be said for everything we're talking about today out of this book, they're kind of like rules, right? And they are rules taken at extremes, you know, construct future hells does not mean don't think about the future or, um, you know, always insist on perfectionism. Just don't care about the quality of the thing you make, but it is those extremes that, that create the misery, I think. Yep. This episode of Focused is brought to you by NetSuite. If you have a business, you might be able to relate to this scenario. Your business gets to a certain size, and then the cracks start to emerge. And things that you used to do in a day are now taking a week or longer. You have too many manual processes, and you don't have one single source of truth. It's never a good feeling when everything in your business is disjointed. You have too many processes in too many places. You want clarity. You want one place where all that important stuff lives, where it all happens. And the solution to untangling that disjointed feeling is NetSuite. NetSuite is a software company that has developed a cloud-based business management platform that can help your team deal with key business processes like enterprise resource planning and financials, CRM, e-commerce, inventory, and more. My previous job, I was an integrator, and that's basically an operations person. And my whole job was trying to get everybody on the same page regarding all the different processes and the ways that work got done within the company. And when everything was scattered all over the place, I can tell you the negative impact that that had on the bottom line. 
we really could have used a tool like NetSuite to get everything in one place so we could have been more productive, profitable, and successful. So if you want to take your business to the next level and make sure that cracks don't emerge as you grow, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, 1. So what do those numbers mean? 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25 is because NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and keep down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Having all the information you need in one place makes it so much easier to make good decisions. So right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash focused, F-O-C-U-S-E-D. That's netsuite.com slash focused to get your own KPI checklist. N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash focused. Go there now, get that free KPI checklist and make sure your business is one that continues to thrive. Our thanks to NetSuite for their support of the Focus podcast and all of Relay FM. All right, I've got one. Uh, be well informed. If you want to be miserable, be up on all the news. <laughs> I, uh, I see this in myself, but I also see it in others. I think that uh, uh, particularly these days, I mean, when I was growing up, the news was very limited. I mean, it was on TV for like a half hour and the newspaper got delivered to the house. There was no internet. So I, I lived in an era where the news was a um, somewhat um, unique thing. Like it was not, there was not an unlimited amount of news. It was, you know, you, there was very little for, of it for you to consume. But during my lifetime, it's turned into something entirely different. You know, we've got 24 seven cable news and we've got the internet that's constantly trying to uh, algorithm you into some sort of news cycle that'll get you wound up. And it's just my relationship with the news has completely changed over the years as a result. Yeah, this is a, a lesson I feel like we all kind of learned when the lockdowns happened, but uh, it goes beyond just the feeding on the, the news sources, like you said, yeah. uh, the be well informed. I, I could have added this to, to my list as well. Uh, but the, the picture I, I get of what this does to you. Um, have you ever seen the movie, that thing you do? Yeah. I, I, is that the one about the one hit wonder band with Tom Hanks? Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, before, before the drummer goes and joins with the rest of the band he's working for the family business and they own a appliance store yeah right and the the dad has got his newspaper open he's like well let's see what telemart is up to today yeah <laughs> you know? oh they got barbecue grills <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. at the end of it he's like i don't know if i want to be in a a country where you got to be open on sunday to <laughs> support a family you know and his wife takes the paper away from him. let's just put that away now <laughs> yeah you can see him getting all agitated because of what somebody else is doing now they're not doing that to him directly right yeah. he's just going in there to, to find that stuff if you want to go find that stuff you can find it and it will upset you but it's not worth it 
Yeah, he's got some qualifications in this section that I thought were humorous and enlightening at the same time. He said, look, if you want to really be miserable, first, there's some qualifications. First, you must not ask yourself why it's so important to learn about all the tragedies all over the world and the celebrity firings. Um, uh, Second, you must not ask about the actual information content the story's presented, you know, that you must see, see them as completely true in their own right. Uh, you should discount the fact that they're all heavily filtered, which is even more true in this algorithmic age where they filter them to give you what they think you want to read, not what's at the actual news. And, um, and then the, the last one, which really landed for me, is the similarities between modern television news and reality television programming should not occur to you. <laughs> and it's so true. I mean, you go on some of these news networks and it's like, they've built a whole narrative. They have a hero's journey in the news that has nothing to do with the news. And they're trying to just get you wound up every night. So yeah, I, I feel like that's something that gets a lot of us. I, when I was a lawyer, I had a couple clients that were really just got into that. And I would just tell them, just, just take a night off, you know, go and go fishing or do something. Cause uh, watching the news can really mess you up. Uh, and I am just as vulnerable as those clients if I let myself be. So I'm very careful about it. Um, the way I cope with it, uh, there's a few things I do is number one is I don't watch any news on YouTube. Like YouTube is probably my TV channel of choice of all of them, but I like to watch people playing the saxophone and people cutting, cutting dovetail joints or the history of Harry Seldon and the foundation or whatever, you know, nerdy thing I'm interested in, Star Wars, something or another. But I really, really try to never click on any news item on YouTube because that is the ultimate algorithm. And if you do click on a news item, no matter where your uh, your political stripes are, I guarantee you it will keep you tied up in knots. So uh, YouTube, no news. Uh, television, I never watch news on the television either. Like, the local news programs to me are just like, uh, I never watch those, you know? And then uh, I try to get news from family members and, and friends saying, oh, did you hear about that thing over there? And I'm like, no, I didn't. And then, <laughs> then I may go explore it a little <laughs> bit if I want to. But I figure I'm using the people around me as a filter because they're nice people that are around me that aren't getting hung up on this stuff. And I figure if it's important enough for them to comment to me about it, then I'll look into it. But uh, I am pretty... Uh, I, I am uh, not as enlightened about current events as you might think. And that is okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that allows me to do other things that are more important with my life. You know? Yeah. Cause it, it exactly. really, the, the news can really just take over your life. And, and that, that point he made that, you know, like what do you know, why are you getting so hung up on a coup in the other side of the world? You can't do anything about it. Right. You know, mm-hmm. a, a good example, right. Maui fire, right. The Maui fire happened. Uh, a friend of mine told me about it. I looked into it. It's terrible. Um, I sent out a newsletter and asked for people to make contributions to the Red Cross and tried to make, and I gave money and I tried to do a few things in my, uh, with the, like we have um, California and Hawaii have a very close relationship. Uh, there's a local shop, surf shop that has a, a sister shop in Maui. Uh, they, they were collecting blankets, blah, blah, blah. They were sending a whole shipment over there. So we gave stuff to them. It's like, you hear the news say, what can I do about this? You know, and you do something about it, but then you, you know, you turn the page. That's it. I, that's all I can do for the Maui fire. Give them money and stuff. 
yeah, do something, but then don't feel like the entire outcome is on your shoulders. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. He included that one, but I think that is definitely a recipe for misery uh, to be well-informed. <laughs> All right. Give us another right. one, Mike. Uh, next one for me is to react to their motives, not their messages. And uh, this whole chapter is kind of about the importance of communication and how hard it is. So one of the things that they mention in there, uh, probably not exactly how I wrote this down in, in my notes, but the kind of takeaway for me was that communication is hard. So don't assume that you understand completely what somebody means. Uh, the way that they tell it in the, the narrative is, you know, if you want to be miserable, jump to conclusions and assume that whatever somebody says word for word, your interpretation of that is exactly what they meant. <laughs> uh, I, I think you can kind of picture, all can probably picture scenarios in our lives where we've done that. And then someone's like, oh, well, it's not what I meant at all. Right. And then you talk through it and like, oh, I guess that really wasn't as big a deal as I, I made it. Um, but I, my, myself, I try to be an excellent communicator. Uh, I fail sometimes, but also uh, I inadvertently apply my perfectionism to how other people communicate to me. <laughs> so I will get frustrated if I don't get the details that I feel like I need in order to understand something. And sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm able to, to go back and, and ask for those things. But other times the temptation there is just, well, this is what they gave me. And so I guess I just got to figure it out. And that is a trap for me because I will almost always look too far into certain things. Um, there's a, an author who wrote the men's curriculum at our, our church. And he's, he said it this way. He said that we judge others by their actions, but ourselves by our intentions, right? We know that, oh, well, I didn't actually mean it that way, but we kind of naturally just judge other people by exactly what they do and never really give them the, the benefit of the doubt. Yes, I agree. It, it's so hard. <laughs> and like, it's so hard to put yourself in the mind of another person anyway, right? Anytime you do that, that's a, that's a loser's game. So how do, how do you combat it? Well, the, the big thing is just forcing yourself to, to slow down and, and kind of give other people the, the benefit of the doubt. So uh, there are certain times when like you have these established relationships um, and you know the people that you work with well enough. Like let's just use the people at my church for, for example, I serve a ministry with these people. They're, they're great people. Uh, so if I disconnect the moment from what I know about serving with them for the last 16 years, right? It's easy for me to be like, oh, well, I obviously don't have the, the whole story. If I'm working with somebody new or my first interaction with someone, it's a little bit harder to do that. But really, it's just reminding myself that, you know, they're not a bad person. This isn't something that they would do. <laughs> yeah. The minute that I ask myself that, like, would they really do something like this? It's like, of course not. <laughs> you know better than that. But the monkey brain just tries to jump to conclusions. Oh, well, they they meant to do this and they have it out for me, you know, and then you get angry and it's downhill from there. And, and you know, we're all carrying all this baggage inside of us. When I um, announced to my family that I was going to stop being a lawyer 
one of my extended family members got angry with me. He was like, so you're just not going to be a lawyer, just giving up your career? Like, you know, very accusatory, like aggressively so. And and it kind of put me on my heels a bit. I didn't know how to respond to it. And then I stopped to think about it. And this person is not, this person's life isn't going exactly, I think, as he wished it. And I thought about, I'm like, well, here I am with a good career and I'm just walking away from it and he'd kill for that career. Right. Mm, and yep. he finds it offensive that someone like me would take a risk when I have, you know, I've got the bird in the hand. Why would I go in the bush? And, and I don't think he meant it out of anger at me, but maybe concern or just like frustration compared to what he's going through. And, and then all of a sudden I like a switch went off in my brain. I'm like, Oh, okay, I get it. He's, he's dealing with stuff and, and I need to be patient with him. And you know, how can I help him? So he doesn't feel that way about himself, you know? And um, so I, I think that's, that's a good one. Thanks for sharing that one. I, I've got another yeah, that's, one that just real, real Go quick ahead. to tag onto that. You kind of touched on like another, kind of way that I, I, I cope with this is uh, exactly what you said. Well, they must be going through something yeah. and I'm not great at this. You know, I still fail to make that connection. I don't even know how many times, uh, but I, I am doing it more and more often and just recognizing that, you know, life is hard. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. going through something. So let's just give them a, a little bit of grace right now. Yeah. The, uh, I don't know if this is one of the, the rules that must be, I, I don't think can't think of one offhand, but just the idea of, you know, it's not about you. I guess you want to be miserable. Think it's always about you. Cause usually yeah, when true. you talk to people, it's not about you. It's about something else. All right. I got one more, uh, measure up, measure down. And you know, the whole idea of comparing yourself to other people. And I, I have done that in the past and it's never made me happy. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's so silly. Why do we do this as humans? Each one of us has a unique experience. Each one of us has a unique history and what we do with our lives is different. And why do we have to compare each other? And the author does such a good job. At one point he writes in this chapter for maximum misery, spend the evening comparing yourself to others, but, and here's the key, not to everyone choose carefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right we do that we pick the one person that's doing something we wish we were doing they're like well, why can't i do that and you don't think about any other element of their life you don't think about all the other people that uh, aren't doing anything like that you only think you fixate on the one that has the thing that you you know the cookie that you want and i feel like that is i think that's something we all can fall into absolutely especially doing anything on the uh the internet because uh you compare your reel to everybody else's highlight reel. Yeah. Right. So I don't do that. I don't find myself doing that with my, with my internet career. Um, I think I found myself doing it more as a lawyer because I was as any measure would be, I think a fairly unsuccessful lawyer. I mean, my clients liked me. I thought I did good work, but I never made the big bucks. You know, a lot of lawyers, people that went through law school with me are millionaires and they've got big firms or, you know, they run these big companies and that was never me. But, you know, if I would compare myself to it, I'd always have to stop and say, well, wait a second, what's the cost of that? You know, what, what, what did they pay out of their life's blood to, to make that happen? And would you have been willing to pay it? 
you know, and then you realize, no, I wouldn't have been. So why are you, why are you trying to compare yourself to them when you're not willing to make the sacrifices they did? You know, how, how do you cope with that, uh, with the measuring? Uh, it's hard, but I try to force the focus back on myself. Um, we talk about the gap in the gain fairly frequently on, on this show. And, uh, that is the, the antidote in my opinion. I can't do anything about what anybody else is doing. And, uh, even personally, like I'm not going to try to compare where I'm at with where I want to be or where I think I I should be. Uh, I'm going to try and just continue to get better. And every once in a while through journaling and my personal retreat process, I'll go back and I'll look at the progress that I made and that's encouraging and I'll keep going. But uh, the rest of the time I'm, I'm trying not to, to measure. Again, funny entries from the book about this. I always look up to the person. He said, select the person with the single best haircut and feel like a slob or find the owner of the Lamborghini and feel humiliated by your old beater. But uh, no matter what it, the measurement is, money, care, uh, cars, uh, career, family, whatever, as humans, we always want to compare ourselves to the person we think has got at the top of the heap. And, uh, and I, I think, honestly, the best coping mechanism for me is just to have an alarm bell go off anytime I kept, catch myself doing that. Mm-hmm. I had always heard this quote by Mark Twain, but now researching it for the show, it's been compared to Theodore Roosevelt. Nobody really knows who said it, but comparison is the thief of joy. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that quote before. I never knew to attribute it to, <laughs> to Roosevelt. but I don't think anybody knows who to attribute to at this point. But if you're listening, say you came up with it. That's fine. Just, you know... <laughs> Don't compare Abraham yourself anymore. <laughs> but I, I love that idea, the thief of joy, because that's exactly what you're doing. Uh, it's another way to state that it's going to cause misery. Every time you catch yourself comparing, just remember that, the first of all, that's an internal dialogue. Rarely are you having that with someone else. And secondly, the only person who pays a price for that that thought is you. Yep. Nobody else pays but you. So why are you doing this to yourself? Just stop. This episode of the Focus Podcast is brought to you by Indeed. Go to indeed.com slash focused and join more than 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. When you're faced with what might be considered aggressive hiring goals, you're not worried because you know you don't need a miracle. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, you can use their powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. Indeed streamlines the hiring process with powerful tools that find you matched candidates. With Indeed Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. According to Indeed data, U.S. Indeed's hiring platform really is great. And don't you want that? You just put the the details of what you're looking for, and then the platform gives you the right people? Because that gets you one step closer to the hire by immediately matching you with quality candidates. Even better, Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements, making it an unbelievably powerful hiring platform, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined according to Talentless 2019. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash focused. That offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash focused. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash focused to support the show by saying you heard about it here on the Focused Podcast. Terms and conditions do apply, but do you need to hire? You need Indeed. And our thanks to Indeed for their support of the Focus Podcast and all of Relay FM. So next one for me is filter for the negative. Uh, And this is really about just always finding the things that are wrong. I kind of talked a little bit about this before. And actually, that's another observation I have with with a lot of these is uh, they don't exist in isolation. There's a lot of overlap between these different things, but um, it talks about how the human mind is not capable of paying attention to everything at once. Uh, this is something that was really driven home for me in liminal thinking by, by Dave Gray. And it talks about all the billions of bits of information that we're exposed to every nanosecond, right? And we can only, our, our conscious attention can only focus on a tiny little sliver of that. Yeah. It's like a, a needle on a record player, right? So if we are filtering for the negative, the things that we are choosing to see are all of the things that are going wrong. Uh, and again, you know, I'm definitely guilty of this, uh, primarily because I tend to identify those things and then stay on those things. Um, so the kind of coping mechanism, uh, as it pertains to this for me is recognizing that while that tiny little thing that I have fixated on is in fact happening, that's not the only thing that is happening. And that little tiny piece of reality may actually be something wrong or or bad, but it is not the totality of everything uh, in reality. And there's always going to be something wrong. There was always going to be things that are going well, though. And so not letting myself just continually fixate on the, the things that are negative, but finding the things that are, are positive. And one of the best ways to do this is, in my opinion, gratitude through a daily journaling practice, finding something specific that happened throughout the day and expressing gratitude for that. Uh, and I try to, with this practice, I try to pick something very specific and something that I haven't picked before. I'm sure if you go back through all my journal entries, there's probably some some duplicates in there. But for the most part, I, I try to pick something, uh, something fresh. Um, one of the things that he mentions in this chapter, by the way, which is kind of a takeaway for me, is that your emotions are governed not by your circumstances, but by the circumstances that you pay attention to. So... I can always find something that's going wrong. I can always also find something that is going right. And the difference between me being miserable or me being happy is uh, really just what I'm choosing to to focus on. Yeah. Um, I, I also, something that really helps me with the filtering for the negative is when I realize that it's part of our, our DNA, it's part of our programming. You know, uh, I always talk about, you know, avoiding saber-toothed tigers. And when we lived out, you know, on the plains and we 
wanted to stay alive, we needed to know where the lion was. So we're we're looking for the lion. We don't care about the beauty of the sunset as much as where is the lion right now. And I think that, you know, genetically, we're not very far away from that guy. But as a result, we see lions and saber-toothed tigers and negative podcast reviews and, you know, snarky emails. We see it in places where it's not actually our existence being threatened, but we, but we focus on that instead. And we miss all the positive reviews and positive emails or whatever it is that we're measuring ourselves by. But when I, when I, when I, when I finally grokked that, Oh yeah, this is just the way we're programmed. That gave me some tools to, to combat it and realize, Oh, there's the, the lizard brain kicking in again. I need to just let go of that and be okay with it. Yep. Yep. But gratitude journaling uh, second that, I mean, if you find yourself being too negative, start writing about things that are positive about. Make a point of documenting it, just like I was talking about with Sparky OS earlier. It, writing it down makes it bigger to you. It makes it more important. And uh, focus on some of the good stuff. That's kind of a powerful idea, right? To think that you can either minimize or magnify certain things just by choosing to focus on them. Yeah, right. But it works. Yep. It works. One of mine that is um, that that you're good at, but I'm actually you're bad at. I'm good at this uh, misery is uh, avoiding exercise. I'm not good at exercising regularly. I've had a meditation practice for over thirty years, no problem. But sometimes I just don't want to go out and exercise, and uh, so that and that has an impact on you. That's one of the first. I think it's his very first trick to being miserable is to don't exercise. And uh, mm-hmm. I've really made efforts the last couple of years. And, you know, I'm not a person that enjoys running like you do. And I have some physical things that make other things not that possible. But I found ways to exercise better. And the trick was just finding things that I enjoy to do that get me up and moving my body. I do a ton of gardening. And I handle woodworking is exercise. If you want to get a sweat, go try and flatten a board with a hand plane. Um, but the... uh but also, uh, I've been trying to do more social exercise lately. My wife and I, my wife does Pilates and I joined it. I am usually the only guy there, <laughs> but I don't care because we get to do it together and it actually is a pretty good workout. So, so I'm trying to find ways to exercise that I can enjoy, but I've just never been a guy who's going to go out and run a half marathon. It's just not, it's just not me. Well, I think that's, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, you got to find the thing that, that, works for you and it's more important that you find something that it is that you run a, a half marathon i mean i have my limits too my my brother this weekend just ran a 50 kilometer trail run yeah. which you know that is my version of this person's doing this thing and nope that sounds crazy <laughs> yeah everyone's got their their limits there all right give me another one all right, so the next one on my list, which is a little bit related to something that I said earlier, but it is a, a separate um, point here, is to hold high expectations of others. Uh, and the reason that this is separate is that there is a important idea here, which is worth talking about. Uh, it's called unconditional positive regard. And that is the belief that one's feelings or affections should be unwavering. So how does this apply? Well, for me, it means that 
this is something we assume that other people are going to have this unconditional positive regard. Uh, their feelings towards us are not going to change basically no matter what we do. And I have definitely burned some bridges in the past through some of the stuff that I've already talked about, the demanding the the perfectionism and, you know, you got to give me more information, right? Recognizing now that it's not all about me, but kind of how it comes off, at least from those I, those moments that I can identify from my past, it, it was all about me, at least in the eyes of of somebody else. And just recognizing that every time you do that, you are making a withdrawal from that emotional bank account. So uh, I'm trying not to do that as much. And I feel like that is uh, one way that I've been coping with this and, and getting better at it. But the other way is recognizing that I can flip this and I can give other people the the benefit of the doubt. And I really need to do that on a more regular basis. Um, I get so fixated on, well, this, this person is late every single time. Like, don't they care? Don't they know any better? And that's, you know, tangential, but this is kind of the thing that's been triggering for me is like, well, no, they're, they're probably going through some, something right now. So they're a, they're a good person, you know, who they are. And yeah, it would be nice if, you know, this, this thing that is a minor annoyance to you could be fixed, but that's not really that important. It's really not that, that big a deal. And uh, just kind of forcing myself to recognize that and then give other people the, the benefit of the doubt and moving more towards that unconditional positive regard in, in my own life for the relationships that are really important to me. Yeah. I, something that really helped me with this was, and it took me 20 years to figure this out, of, of is this trying to limit myself to quality people in my life? And what I mean by that is like early in my law career, we had clients and just there were, there were people I dealt with that were not what I would call quality people. And so every time you have a, a, a transaction with them, a discussion with them, you always knew there was some, some game afoot and it made you defensive and it made it really hard for you to have an open heart toward that person because you knew that it was going to be trouble if you did open yourself up. And then one day it occurred to me, what if I just stopped dealing with people like that? And then started using that as a condition in my life. And this is about, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago now that I decided to make that rule. And it's not 100%, but it's it's almost 100%. Everybody in my life are people who I've chosen to make part of my life. And if, if you think that you start the um, conversation with, this is a quality person, you have so much more patience for them. You have so much more grace for them. If you know, hey, this is a good person, whatever's happening is happening, but it's not because they're a bad person. Yep. That's kind of how I got around that. Uh, although you still bump into the occasional bozo, but then my goal is when I when I encounter bozos, my immediate thought is not that I'm going to argue with them or fix them or change them. My immediate thought is, how do I get this person out of my life? Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty effective at it. I've gotten pretty good at it. Usually you just ignore them and that's enough, but... But the uh, the trick is to get bozos out of your life, and then suddenly th this becomes a much easier problem to solve. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the the phrase you, you used was open 
your heart towards people, I think, something along those lines. And uh, you're right, when you have set up the filters ahead of time and you have quality people in your life, then you don't have to be on guard for that kind of stuff. And that is the the key, right? Is not take it on a case-by-case basis, but a person-by-person basis. Be more strict about who you're going to allow into the the inner circles, but then be less strict about the specifics of the the situation once they're there. Okay, my last one, stay in your comfort zone. And this is something I've struggled with as the child of depression era kids, this idea that, you know, don't take risks. And uh, it's something that has always been kind of an underlying risk constraint for me. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at dealing with it. But I think that uh, the unwillingness to take a risk and get out of the comfort zone is an excellent way uh, for a long, excellent method for long-term misery. Yeah, this one was interesting. One of the things they talk about is how if you want your comfort zone to grow, you have to leave it, <laughs> which, I mean, it makes sense when you sit and think about it. But I remember that really resonating with me when I read it is like, oh yeah, so the feeling of this being uncomfortable, that is the way. (laughs) Yeah. A quote from the book, the zone of comfort hides a secret. The longer you spend in it, the smaller it gets. Yep. That is something, but I'm aware of it and I actively fight against it, but it took me a few years to figure that out. That one felt pretty personal to me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, me too when I when I read that one. Uh last one I've got is to give 100% to your work. And uh I wrote this one down because I feel like this is something that is easy for me to slip into right now. Not going back into the, all of the details, but leaving my day job, going out on my own, trying to get this thing going as quickly as I can. The tendency is always, well, just do one more thing, do one more thing, do one more thing. And there's always something else that is clearly needing to be done for the business uh, right now. So forcing myself to, nope, that's enough for today. I'm going to shut down now and disconnect and not pick this up until it is time to do so tomorrow. Uh, And in the, the chapter, they talk about how, like, you really should just be giving uh, they even kind of make fun of the the manager who asked for 110 percent. right they want you to give your your life to your job and then you don't have anything left over for any of your family any of your friends any of your own personal interests and uh i saw a little bit too much of myself in that description for comfort (laughs) And, and yeah i've worked for people like that too you know it's like where there's a sense of betrayal if you are not working every moment and uh, and that's tough. It's a tough pressure to put on yourself. That's something I think um, I was talking uh, on the recent episode of Mac Power Users uh, to a guest, and I was thinking, you know, people give millennials a lot of grief, but I think millennials get that better than prior generations do. True. That, you know, there's more to life than just work, and I respect that about them. Yeah. All right. Well, the book is called... How to Be Miserable by Randy J. Peterson. We just covered 10 of our hangups. So that was kind of fun. Kind of a uh, feel a little better, Mike. Thanks for indulging me. I, w- I was just thinking as you were talking, this would be a fun experiment to do with my wife, to have us both read the book and talk with each other about where where it's hard for us. 
this might might be something useful. But uh, it's a good book. There's 40 of them. And I found it to be a fun read, but also uh, something that caused me to think about changing my actions and ways a bit. And uh, it definitely, uh, if you want to get focused, you're going to have to nail some of this stuff down. So go check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes for it. And uh, we got more for you on the Focus Podcast right after this. This episode of Focus is brought to you by ExpressVPN. You probably heard you should be using a VPN when you connect to the internet. But adding an extra step to anything that you do every day is just a hassle. Well, if you knew how easy it was to protect your connection with ExpressVPN, you'd probably be doing it already. ExpressVPN is the easiest way to browse safely, securely, and just better. I use a VPN every single time that I connect to public Wi-Fi, if I'm working from a coffee shop or if I'm traveling, for example. But you may even want to use a VPN when you're at home. Because when you use a VPN, other people and companies aren't able to tie your traffic with you specifically because it's not your IP address that they see. It's the IP address of the VPN that you're connected to. So if you're sick of buying something off of Amazon and then seeing related ads show up all over the web, a VPN can help with that. It's not just for accessing sites in other countries. And ExpressVPN can give you all of those features without all of the downsides, the things that people hate about VPNs. It's a VPN done right. First of all, it's blazing fast. A lot of other VPNs that I've used have slowed down my connection to the point where it's not even worth it to connect, but ExpressVPN doesn't lag or buffer. You can stream in HD with no issues. And using it couldn't be easier. You just open the ExpressVPN app, you click the button, and you enjoy instant protection across all your devices. The fact is, once you connect to ExpressVPN, you don't even realize you have it on, and that's the best recommendation I can give for it. Your connection is secure, your data is encrypted, you can spoof your location, you can have access to content available outside your region if you want to. No wonder it's been called the best VPN by CNET. So right now, go to expressvpn.com slash focused, F-O-C-U-S-E-D, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash focused to get three extra months of ExpressVPN. Expressvpn.com slash focused. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of the Focus podcast and all of Relay FM. We had a little extra time today, Mike, and I wanted to talk about shiny new objects, something we haven't done on the show in a long time because we've both been yeah. buying stuff. So let's <laughs> make true. it feel, let's make ourselves feel better by sharing, sharing it. All right. You want me to go first? Yeah. All right. Well, I, this isn't actually shiny, but it is a, a new object. I definitely have some shiny objects too, but uh, I have a paper copy of Cal Newport's second version of his time block planner. And uh, Cal Newport is, in my opinion, the, time block person uh, he's the person who i first heard about it from and uh, this planner has existed the first version of it for a while but he recently redid it and made a couple of of upgrades to it and uh, it's an analog planner essentially with a wire binding so that it lies flat uh, the beginning of this planner has a section on time blocking. So uh, it's actually a, a really good, concise intro to the time blocking message. If uh, 
that is something that you're looking for some help getting going with it. But uh, the big thing that this gives you is a layout that allows you to do time blocking the way that Cal describes it. So um, there is a side-by-side page here for the day. And uh, on the first page, there is a list for tasks and ideas. There's a section at the top for daily metrics and a checkbox for a shutdown complete. Um, Let me just walk through this real quickly because the daily metrics, I don't think I have a daily metric I want to track here. But one of the examples that he shares in the description of of this layout is that this can be something like if you're a salesperson, you're trying to make a hundred phone calls, you know, you have a little tick every time that you, you make one. I've been in sales. I've, I've actually done that. I did it on a notepad. <laughs> so uh, I think there are some cool ways that you could use those daily metrics, but that's not how I'm using daily metrics in terms of like habit tracking or anything like that. But then on the right side of the, the spread, there are four columns for your time block plan. And so the idea here is that you write out the first version of the plan but that plan is not going to uh, it's not going to stick when it encounters contact with the outside world it's going to change so there are three other columns where at any point you can change the the rest of your day and redraw your time block plan make adjustments for how the rest of your day is is going to go um, i just got this but i've been using it for the last couple of days and I think that that's a really cool exercise. I, I can see how that would totally stick for some people. It hasn't really stuck for me. I'm, I'm curious when you do time blocking, uh, I know you've gone back and forth. You've done it fantastic. You've done it analog. When you were doing it analog, were you following this method or were you just making one version of the plan and, and that was good enough? Uh, I've, I've tried them all. My, it seems like my journaling is always in motion. Uh, but what I what I have done is run drawn down the center of the page on a dot grid the hours, and then on the left side I put the plan, and then on the right side I put how the day actually went. Sure, I don't do that all the time though. I I don't know that it's worth it to me. I can't make up my mind on it to be honest. Like on some days today, I'm doing a bunch of podcasting, recording, and and labs meet up, so everything is going to just track because I have no choice. They they all involve other people. But then on other days, sometimes I do get taken off of the plan for good reasons. And I, I don't really feel like guilty about it. So usually when I do not follow my blocks, it's for good reason. And I don't feel necessary to, to review it. I think this is a very good um, practice when you're starting time blocking. Because one of the big mistakes you make when you start time blocking is you make too small of blocks. And by forcing you to go and update them, you learn pretty quickly you know, how long it takes to do something. And it's usually twice as long as you initially thought. But then after a while, you just start blocking for properly, you know, the, the, the proper amount of time. And it's not as big of a deal. So I, I'm, I'm not religious about this, but I do occasionally use the technique. If I have one now, it's primarily I'll write down the big events or blocks of the day and a list at the top of the journal, whether it be digital or, or handwritten. And then I'll do some degree of, of journaling throughout the day as I move between big things. And then I can look back and see how that compared to the actual plan. And I find that's, that's kind of the happy medium for me. Yeah, that makes a a lot of sense. In fact, Cal kind of talks about that both in the planner. And then also I've been listening to his podcast recently, and he's been talking about 
time blocking there as, as well. And he mentions that time blocking, in his estimation, allows you to get twice as much work done in the same time, same amount of time. I, I don't know the science behind that or if it's just a, a gut feel. But he does talk about how in order to effectively time block, you have to be able to compare your initial plan and, and have those different feedback loops and look at what actually happened versus what your initial plan was. And so this almost feels like to me a forced way of updating the plan and seeing what is actually playing out as you go without doing any sort of time tracking. Yeah. But I think that's the ideal version is that you've got a plan for how you intend to spend your time and then you have some sort of record to look at how you actually spent your time. And over time, if you compare those two and you make small adjustments here and there, eventually they will become probably not uh, the same, but they're moving in that that direction anyway. Yeah, I think if you're getting started with time blocking, though, the two things, two of the best things you could do for yourself is read um, his uh, deep workbook and buy one of these journals. I, I think that's like a very easy way. It's like, it's almost like giving yourself, um, giving yourself a, a boost in terms of getting that practice down. Yep. Maybe in the long run, you don't need, you don't need to do it that that deeply every day but i think for the first six months it's the the best way to do it yeah agreed uh i i do like this this planner for someone who is getting started with uh with time blocking now cal talks about how he chose this paper for the new version because of the specific types of pens that he uses and let's just say that we have very different opinions about what is good paper <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh that being a you know, I'm a fancy fountain pen guy, so um, that's not going to be great for most people who are trying to do time blocking anyways. You're going to smear and yeah, it's it's just not practical, but it feels really, really nice. Um, so I, I think I would recommend this for people who are looking for an analog resource for getting into to time blocking, but I don't think it's going to stick for me personally. Uh, ultimately for me, my analog books are all dot grid. I love it. I love the... Um the freedom of dot grid. So if I feel like, Oh, this is going to be a complicated day. Maybe I will do the Cal new part thing with the hours down the center of the page, or maybe not, but I can choose each day what I'm going to use those dot grids for. Yep. One other thing with this planner, by the way, uh, adjustment that he made is that he thinks you should not plan all of your downtime. He's basically saying you should time block your work time. And so the weekend pages aren't giving you a full, spread like the rest of the pages it's just a uh, it's a more simplified version of it which i think is kind of a a cool idea and uh, interesting to me that that was something that he saw people doing and he's like no you really shouldn't be doing it that way again opinionated choice there uh, i think an argument could be made the other way too but i like the way that he's kind of modifying this planner to fit the the system that he is telling people to follow yeah, see, because I, I disagree with that. I think you should time block downtime. I feel like that's just as important as work time. The 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 slippery slope with time blocking is you start time blocking everything for work if you're not careful. So I like the idea of time blocking downtime. So yeah, but you know, teach his own. Cal wrote the book on it, so you know he's he's got some pretty good ideas, I'm sure. Yep. All right, my shine. I have two shiny new things actually. Um, the uh, I am working. You know, as Obsidian Field Guide ships, I'm working on the next field guide, which is going to have a, a larger than usual written component on it. 
And I've been trying to do some kind of mode switch proper writing lately where I just sit down and write. And I was doing it on my, um, my iPad. So I thought, well, what if I kind of set up my iPad as a um, really truly like a, a just write me on me device? So on my writing desk, I have an extra iPad and I've got IA Writer installed. So, uh, which is just a beautiful writing app that's a type kind of a typewriter app. And I got my clicky mechanical keyboard and paired it with the iPad. And I've built a little writing station when I want to write and I open the iPad. It's, you know, it's turned off of um, all connections. There's no distractions at all. And I've made like a, uh, I don't know what you call it, a 2023 typewriter out of it. And um, I've been having a lot of fun with that the last few months. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So the trick is just get a stand. I looked at different apps. I also looked at Hank's writer. You know, Tom Hanks is a big typewriter fan. And yep. and he made his own, or he worked with somebody to make an app that like simulates old typewriters. That was just a bridge too far for me. <laughs> I just I just wanted to to type on the <laughs> screen. But but IA writer does sync. I can turn on the sync when I want. And uh I've got a little machine here now that that functions as my typewriter, but this is where the this is where it takes a turn. Um, doing that kind of reminded me of being a kid and having a typewriter, like and using it. And I got thinking, I never saw myself as someone that would ever want to use a typewriter again. You know, I was so happy when computers showed up and word processors. But I also often send little note cards and things to friends. And I got thinking, wouldn't it be fun to like type those on like an old timey typewriter? <laughs> and so I started this, it took me about a month of research because I didn't want to like, you can spend a lot of money on a manual typewriter. And I definitely wanted a manual one. I didn't want an electric one because I learned to type on a manual. And I found, I'm pretty sure that because when I was in middle school, I took typing, which was a great class for someone back then because, you know, I've used it my whole life. But I learned on a German typewriter, it was an Olympia. And I found, I think the one that I learned on it's an Olympia SM3. They were made in the 50s. And it was ancient when I used it as a kid. But uh, I found somebody selling one, and I bought one. So I spent $300 on a typewriter. It's not here yet. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. But uh, I don't see myself like writing the next field guide on it. But I think it would be fun to write like notes and cards to friends on it and just kind of find little odd uses for it. And uh, hopefully it's in good shape. I ordered it from the Netherlands, so um, the uh, it, it's got the 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 letters reversed for German because it's you know I think the Z and the Y are in different are are switched you know, so I'm gonna Whoa. have to type slow on it. But the uh, but I I do like the idea of it, and uh, I haven't received it yet. But I wanted to share it with somebody. I thought if anybody could um, appreciate this kind of madness, it'd be you, Mike. Yeah, so I don't know anything about typewriters. I just looked up the Olympia SM3 that you you mentioned. Yeah, I think I get the appeal though. This does look like a pretty cool classic machine. Um, one of the things that the article I found talks about is replacing the ribbon. So I'm I'm kind of curious if this actually sticks and you start using it and you make it through uh, a, a maintenance cycle with it. Yeah, <laughs> but I get I the know. appeal with the nostalgia. Well, it's been around since the fifties. I I feel like almost like a stewardship for this thing. I've I have to take care of it, you know, because 
mm-hmm. it's lasted this long it's got a few scratches on it i saw pictures of it it's yeah like i like i said you can spend a lot of money buying an old antique typewriter but i i, I was actually looking for what you would call a user you know uh something that i could use that's in good shape for use but not necessarily super valuable and uh and that's the one i got and uh i can't wait for it to get here but that's uh that's my shiny new thing, a 1955 Olympia SM3. I <laughs> love it. All right. We are the Focus Podcast. You can find us at relay.fm slash focus. We'd love for you to check it out. We have an ad-free extended version of the show called Deep Focus. You can sign up for that right there. We're going to be talking about Deep Focus today. We've got uh, some, some stuff to talk about with Mike and Meditation. Uh, we want to thank our sponsors today. That is our friends over at Vitaly, ExpressVPN, Indeed, and NetSuite. Uh, if you want to check out the Deep Focus podcast, that's the extended ad-free version. You can do that right there at Relay.fm slash focus. And otherwise, we'll see you next time.